Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. So we will have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed all of these things to us in your word and that you have revealed to us everything related to our salvation and all that you have provided for us in terms of our spiritual life. Father, it is your word that describes for us and encompasses for us all of reality. Father, we pray now as we study your word that you would help us to understand these things, that you would make these things clear to us under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Father, we continue to pray this morning for our nation, for our leaders in the nation, for our president, for congressional leaders, for civil leaders, for military leaders. We pray that you would give them wisdom and skill as they continue to prosecute the war against terrorism, as they continue to seek to shore up the physical security of this nation. Father, we know ultimately our security is in your hand, in your hand alone. And so we ask that you would continue to protect this nation, to foil the plots of those that would seek to do us harm, and that you would give us the skill we need to root them out and to destroy them. Father, we pray now as we study your word that you would help us to focus, to concentrate, that we might be able to Uh, set aside any human viewpoint, opinions or ideas, preconceived notions which we might have that under the light of your word we might be able to exchange the human viewpoint in our soul for the divine viewpoint of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we will continue our study of this passage, which in light of contemporary beliefs is completely at odds with the many conceptions that most people in 21st century America have about the role of men and women. Since the middle of the 19th century, there was a significant and conscious assault 
on the biblical teaching on the role of men and women in society. It had its uh, origin in the uh, feminist movement of the, that began in the mid-19th century, which grew out of a, a spectrum of beliefs that targeted social change in this country as a means of bringing in the millennium. Most people don't understand that. But there was a terrible movement that came out of uh, what was called the Second Great Awakening in this country, which occurred in the early part of the 19th century. It was a, a revival that... Uh, swept the nation, and many people want to classify it as in the same category as, as what had occurred in the 1740s, which was known as the First Great Awakening. However, although there were uh, some good elements to the Second Great Awakening, there were many uh, elements that were anti-biblical and emotional, and there were many theological trends that developed in that Second Great Awakening that are with us today. It's very interesting to go back and use that, the, what happened in the 1820s and 1830s as sort of a blueprint for what has happened in American history since then. What you have, uh, in a sense, in the early part of the 19th century was a, an influx of an idea on the one, from evangelicalism, and I use that term very loosely, of post-millennialism. Post-millennialism, and that came out of what we'll call the, quote, Christian side of the society. And on the other side, you had a utopian view. Now, when I say post-millennialism, there's, there's really two categories of post-millennialism that have developed in in history, I think there is a at a very foundational element. There, there's some assumptions that are held in common between a liberal postmillennialism and a more conservative, biblically based postmillennial postmillennialism that grew out of well, I use the word biblical again in a very loose way, but out of a uh, out of a, a conservative Calvinism. But I don't want to get sidetracked into the finer points of theology as far as that's concerned. This post-millennialism really grew out of a more Arminian framework, not the traditional Calvinism, because it was influenced by a guy, a man by the name of Charles Grandison Finney. And Finney's theology really profoundly impacted evangelicalism, especially in the North not among conservative Presbyterians, but uh, a large segment of society. And Finney's theology, first of all, rejected the entire doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity teaches that every human being is born as a descendant of Adam, is born with a sin nature, and is totally depraved. Tot the word total in that phrase does not mean man is as bad as he can be. But it means that every dimension of the human soul has been affected and warped by the sin nature. So that his mentality, his self-consciousness, his, uh, his conscience, all have been, been affected by sin. So you have the, he rejected the doctrine of total depravity. He, therefore, because man is not a sinner, every man is born in Adam's original con condition of 
pure uh, neutrality. He's not a sinner. He's not fallen. He has the same options Adam has. It's not necessary for Christ to die as a penalty for sin, per se. And so he rejected the entire doctrine of a substitutionary atonement. So man is not basically evil. He's basically good. Christ doesn't die for the sins of mankind. And then as an outgrowth of the rejection of total depravity, if man is not basically evil, then man is perfectible. And so he believed that not only was each individual man, individual perfectible, but as an extension of that, society was perfectible. Now, on the non-Christian side of the equation, you have the secular utopians, the transcendentalists such as Emerson and Thoreau. They, too, believe that man is basically, basically good and perfectible and that, therefore, society is perfectible. And between these two groups, the so-called uh, Christian evangelicals on the one hand, the perfectionists, and the utopian transcendentalists on the other side, you had sort of an ethical um, and political merger take place. And their basic agenda is the perfection of societies. They look out on America. They uh, picked up certain ideas that were uh, prevalent in Puritan theology, and they transformed those ideas the idea that America was uh, chosen by God and therefore we were a mess, had a messianic purpose. You know, a lot of bad hermeneutics and bad theology all came together and produced this idea that we could perfect society. And so they outlined various social evils that they targeted. And the idea was that as you clicked off this checklist... Uh, of social evils and conquered each one, then you were perfecting society and you could ultimately bring in the millennium. Now, number one on the list of social evils was slavery. Number, number two was the use of alcohol, and you have the roots of the temperance movement. You have uh, women's rights which had, I mean, there was certain legitimacy in some, some claims. It's the context in which it's, it's promoted. See, it's not just a particular issue. It is the context and how something is resolved. A right thing done in a wrong way is always wrong and is going to end up producing a fragmentation in society. So even though you may say, well, slavery as it was practiced, chattel slavery as it was practiced in the South was wrong, it wasn't that they were, that, that the goal was wrong in, in abolishing slavery and are abolishing the slave trade, it was the way in which it was done from this sort of perfectionistic uh, er- perfectionistic framework which was rooted and grounded in arrogance and in a f- bad theology. Women's rights, you also have uh, labor rights was uh, an- another major issue. And as part of that, you also had uh, child labor laws develop. 
So if you look at that list of social evils, slavery, alcohol, women's rights, labor rights, and child labor, you really see the history of the United States for the last 200 years, almost 200 years, as man, on the basis of human viewpoint techniques and strategies, sought to solve social problems on his own, apart from God, thinking that man was ultimately perfectible. And as I'm click these off, I'm not making a comment, or I'm not suggesting that in any way that, that everything they did was necessarily wrong. What I am pointing out is the context in which it was done, the ideological context in which it was done, was wrong, because it assumed that the Bible was was not right. It ultimately had a at its root a rejection of biblical authority and biblical truth. Let me give you just a simple example when it comes to slavery. And that was the idea that slavery per se was an evil. Now, if slavery per se is an evil, why does God come in and give certain regulations and stipulations about slavery in the Old Testament? God doesn't regulate evil. God prohibits evil. But in the way in which slavery was regulated, it preserved volition in the Old Testament. No one could be a slave for more than six years. During the sabbatical year, all slaves were free if you ch- and all debts were wiped out. And if you chose to stay in a position of slavery, that was a voluntary decision and a decision of the individual opting for, for security. There was no such thing as a race-based slavery or a, a chattel slavery as it was practiced in the Roman Empire later on and throughout much of, much of history. Once again, you have the, the imposition on the scripture of an external system of, uh, uh, of right and wrong, an external system of norms and standards that's not informed from the scripture. Same thing happens with alcohol. By the time you get to prohibitions, the idea that all alcohol use is is inherently wrong. Scripture does not teach that. The Scripture teaches that drunkenness is wrong, but it does not teach that the use of alcohol is wrong. And once you uh, you go to an external value system uh, that is external to the Scripture and then come back and impose that on the Scripture, then what happens is you're basically saying the Scripture's not exactly right and I know better and so I'm going to impose my value system on the Scriptures. And the same thing happens, again, with, with women's rights, is that there were certain inequities in the way uh, women were treated and in the way certain laws were written, and you, did, you had women who would perform the same job as a man, and they would not receive equal pay, and there were many other abuses that took place. Of course, one is the idea that, that uh, women were not allowed to vote. Well, what most people don't understand is that the model for the United States Constitution went back to a, a an idealized form, really, of the Roman Republic. And that's crucial. It was not until the early 1800s that you had a social shift take place where the model shifted from being ancient Rome to ancient Greece. Now, that's a crucial shift that really filtered down and reverberated throughout all of American society, but that is an, that's another issue. The point that I want to make simply on women's rights is under a Roman model, Rome valued the family, uh, the, the patriarchy, as it were. So in, under the Roman Republic ideals, 
the core element in society wasn't the individual, it was the family. And therefore, the, re- the reason that men and only men had the right to vote is not because women were excluded, but because men were viewed as the head of a family. And so under the old Roman Republic idea, when a man, when the man was chosen as the one who voted, he was voting as the leader of the family unit. It's not this, this, uh, uh, individual woman versus individual man. That only comes in when the country shifts to looking to a Greek model, a, a democracy model, away from the old republic model. And when you shift to a democracy model, then the emphasis goes to each individual, and society is no longer, uh, or the family is no longer viewed as the core element in the in a society. It is now the individual that's the core element of society. So you see a, a further atomization, shall we say, of American society to each individual, and then that, of course, plays itself out today where everybody is so focused on individual rights and so self-absorbed that there's very little cohesion in terms of any sort of group unity. And once you get to the point where you're focusing so much on individual, so-called individual rights, then what happens is marriage fragments, families fragment, and eventually uh, the nation fragments. And the Founding Fathers understood many of these principles, and so it wasn't that Although there, I'm not denying the fact that there were certainly uh, some negative views towards women, and women were viewed in some circles as second-class citizens, but that in terms of the ultimate uh, philosophy of government, it was viewing the family as the core unit as opposed to the individual, and so the man was had the right to vote because the male property owner was viewed as, a, 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 if he was a property owner, that he had... Uh, he had more stability and he represented the whole family. Of course, that eventually broke down. Then you had labor rights, and certainly there were inequities in the way labor was treated and abused, and so you had certain legitimacy on the part of uh, labor unions initially, but before long, labor unions came to dominate and became began to be a right in and of themselves and just another form of management oppressing labor, in my opinion. And then you have... Uh, other problems with, with child labor. All of this came out of a view that man was not totally depraved and that man is, was perfectible. And so what happened is people began to uh, evaluate society and how people related to one another in social functions on the basis of a value system that w- really was generated from you know, externally from Scripture not from within Scripture, and then those external values were taken and forced upon Scripture. As a result of that, when people come to passages such as 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, where it talks about uh, men and women in marriage, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that women are to keep silent in the church, from within this framework, this external human viewpoint framework that generated out of this this autonomous view of society in the in the 19th century, people come to those passages and it clashes so strongly with what has become sort of the accepted norm in society 
that we can't understand this. And so there, there's, on the one hand, an attempt to just remove it from the Scripture, and this is the role of liberals and what I would call, or what is classified as moderate evangelicals, and they reject, essentially reject the authority of Scripture and try to either remove this from Scripture claimed that the Apostle Paul just really didn't understand. He was a misogynist. He hated women, and so he's always putting down women. Or they just say, well, it was culturally, all of this was just culturally determined, and it has no application other than the immediate historical context of the first century. Last time, as we got into our study of uh, verse 3, I spent some time going through the various arguments that are presented from the liberal side or from the pseudo-evangelical side of the equation, trying to argue that, that these passages don't actually mean what they say based on a literal grammatical hermeneutic. So this time we want to get into the actual exegesis of verse 3 to see what it says and what it does not say. Verse 3 says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, the key word that we're going to find in this passage, and you ought to uh, either circle or underline, there's several key words that you find again and again in this passage, but one of the most important is this word head. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So three times in verse 3, you have the use of the word head. It's used again in verse 4. It's used uh, twice, or three times in verse 5. It's used again in verse 7. It's used again in verse 10. So this is a key concept in this passage. And therefore, because it's such a key word, it has become the focus of a tremendous amount of debate, of debate over the meaning of head. Now the word head here, translated from the Greek, the Greek word is kephale. K-E-P-H-A-L-E. Kephale. Now, the feminist contention is that the word does not mean authority, but that the word is based on the idea of origin. The traditional interpretation of headship is that it has two concepts. It has a literal meaning, the physical head, which is on top of your neck, hopefully, when you wake up in the morning, and a figurative sense where it refers to uh Authority, where it refers to uh, the exercise of authority and the person who is in authority. The Greek word here, the the contention is from, from the liberals, is that this word does not signify headship or authority at all. One scholar writes, in normal Greek usage, Classical or contemporary, kephale, does not signify head in the sense of ruler or chieftain of a community. 
That's just a bold statement. However, he cites no documentation for that claim. Now, this is a typical uh, sort of debater's technique that you'll find in, in literature is where people just make bold claims like that. You'll find it from politicians also, where there is no evidence to support the claim. However, a search of over 2,000 uh, years of usage of the word kephale in all classical and Hellenistic Greek uh, makes it clear that head me- meant authority or leader. And the only time, and it only occurs in, in two instances, that it has the idea of source or origin is when it is used in the plural. It's when it is used in the plural. So when it is used in the singular, through through 2,000 years of the Greek language, from uh, classical Greek through uh, Hellenistic and Koine Greek up to modern Greek, the word has the idea of authority or leadership. Uh, the classical, I mean, the uh, standard Koine dictionary called uh, uh, now it's called Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich in the third edition states that. Kephale means the part of the body that contains the brain or a being of high status. Those are the two basic meanings. Metaphorically, it is used of persons, that is, the head, the chief, one to whom others are subordinate. For example, the husband in relationship to the wife in 1 Corinthians 11.3 and Ephesians 5.23 insofar as they are one body, and one body can have only one head to direct it. It is used of Christ in relation to his church, uh, which is his body, and its, its members are his members. 1 Corinthians 12:27, Ephesians uh, 1:22, 4:15, and as well as Colossians 1:18, 2:10, and 2:19. So their headship clearly refers to the concept of authority, both in terms of the husband in relationship to the wife and Christ in relationship to the body of believers. Christ is the head of the church. That doesn't mean he is the origin, although that is true. That is not the emphasis in those passages. It has to do with the fact that he is the leader, the ruler, the one in final authority, the one who is to, or the one to whom the body of believers is uh, accountable and subordinate. So it is used this way consistently in Greek literature, even in the standard classical Greek lexicon, the Liddell Scott Jones. It refers to the, either the head of a man or beast as the noblest part uh, for the whole person. Sometimes it refers to life in the sense of taking someone's head or in the sense of capital punishment, and it is used as the as the person in authority. The concept of source or origin, the idea of kephale used in the plural, has no example in the New Testament or in the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, this is a very important point because again and again and again, some of the major feminist writers make this contention. And uh, I, my, one of my favorite little anecdotes on this is my friend Wayne House. 
Wayne was a, a professor at Dallas Seminary when I was uh, working on my doctorate there several years, many years ago now. And Wayne and I became good friends. And Wayne has quite an ap- academic pedigree, including a uh, master's degree in patristic uh, studies, uh, undergraduate degrees in New Testament, Ph.D., as well as a law degree. And he's an excellent debater. And Wayne has had the opportunity to have public debates with many of the leading feminist proponents in this country. And he was, he was debating, um, I think it was Catherine Crager, who was one of the leading writers from the, from the feminist side. He was debating her at a Presbyterian school in Washington State several years ago. And in her, uh, in her side of the debate, she put forth this idea that there was that headship in the New Testament always referred to origin, and it didn't refer to to uh, authority at all. Now, Catherine Crager made a crucial error because she doesn't know Greek, and so in Wayne's rebuttal, Wayne reached into his briefcase, pulled out a three. This was just after. Comp- computerized studies were, were making things like this available, pulled out a three-inch sheaf of papers and says, I have here a printout of every use of kephale in classical and Koine Greek language. Would you please point out to me the example where kephale is used to refer to origin? He said that um, at that particular Presbyterian school, I think it was Whitworth College in, in uh, Washington State, that it took about six months before the faculty had the student body back under their uh, liberal control. And that there, there were reverberations for a couple of years from that, from that debate. They weren't going to have a conservative come on campus again and disrupt their liberal ideology. So the idea of Kephale does not have the idea of origin. It has the idea of headship. Now, one of the, one of the reasons or one of the uh, basis for support that you'll find for this is people will try to go to verse 12, which states, For as woman uh, came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. And that, of course, is a verse that is about nine verses removed from verse 3 and is not explaining the concept of headship. In fact, what that is explaining is the principle in Verses eight and eight and eleven, which is the biblical balance to the extreme of male tyranny. See that that's the unique thing about about the Bible, and it's the unique thing about the Apostle Paul is when Paul speaks on the one hand about the headship and the authority of the man. On the other hand, he always balances that with the. Uh, significant role of the woman. See, there is a balance. Even though the male is the one in authority, it is the the male comes from a woman through birth, and that indicates that at one level there is a level of equality. They are both fully human. And this takes us back to Genesis chapter 1 to understand that distinction between what I'll call well, the distinction between role and essence. Now, before we get there, we have to lay the groundwork, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul does in verse 3. He says, I want you to understand three things. 
I want you to understand three things. And when we read that, that little word there in the English, that, that is a translation of the Greek word hati. And hati here is used to introduce a principle. So he's basically, you could translate this, I want you to understand colon. Following the colon, you have the three propositions that Paul is emphasizing. Proposition number one is that Christ is the head of every man. The key element in that phrase is Christ. Second proposition, the man is the head of a woman. Third proposition, God is the head of Christ. It's structured something like this. Just as Christ has authority over every man, man has authority over the woman, and in the same sense, God has authority over Christ. Now, the first and the third elements in this structure have a relationship to Jesus Christ, and this is what is set up in terms of its literary structure as an inclusio. An inclusio. And in an inclusio, you'll have a statement A, then statement B, and then perhaps statement B prime, which reflects statement B, and then you come back to statement A, A prime. And in an inclusio, the focus is on what's in the middle. Sometimes this is what might also be called a chiasm, but the focus is what is on the middle. So you have two statements that mirror each other with something in between, and it's what's in between that is important that is being emphasized. And So what is being emphasized in verse 3 is the principle that the head of woman is man, and that is the subject of verses 3 through uh, through 16, 3 through 16 emphasizes the biblical teaching on the distinct roles of males and females. And that is the terminology that's used here is that the head, when it states the head of woman is man, it is not using the generic term anthropos, but it is using the term andros, which is the Greek term for male. Anthropos is the Greek term for mankind in general, sometimes for male, but uh, in a context like this, it could be, anthropos could be taken as uh, referencing, um, as referencing, representing man in general. So the idea here is that it starts with the head of that Christ is the head of every man, man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So it's clearly talking about a, a, subordinate, a subordinate structure and a structure of authority. Now this verse, to understand this verse, we have to recognize that a, we have to have a correct understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. This is last week, the, one of the last objections that I raised from the liberal side is that is a, an objection that relates to an understanding of the Trinity, and their contention is that Christ was only subordinate to the Father uh, during the time of the Incarnation. The claim is that he was only subordinate to the Father in the 
terms of the incarnation, but that is a concept that is not taught in the scriptures. Let's look at a couple of passages to uh, see what the scriptures teach. Hold your place here in 1 Corinthians 11 and just turn over a few chapters to chapter 15, verse 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. This verse reads, Now, when all things are subjected, are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God, that is, God the Father, may be all in all. So this takes us to into the future, to the point in time at the at the end of the millennial kingdom, when all things are made subject to him with the destruction of Satan and his uh, sentence to the lake of fire and the sentence of all unbelievers to the lake of fire, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him. And that is a reference to God the Father. So in eternity future, even after the close of human history, it, it, Jesus Christ is still under the authority, as the second person of the Trinity, under the authority of the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. This is also clearly stated by Jesus himself in the Gospel of John. Let's look at a few passages in in the Gospel of John. Let's turn first to John chapter 5, verse 19. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. This clearly teaches a subordination of God the Son to God the Father. Galatians 5.22 For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. So the fact that the Father gives or delegates all judgment to the Son indicates that the Father is the one who is in authority over the Son. Then we skip down to verse 30. There Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own initiative, or the New King James translates it, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. These three passages clearly teach that there is a role subordination in the Trinity. Then, if you look at another passage in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus makes the statement, I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. 
So we have to go back to the doctrine of the Trinity and the essence of God if we are going to understand the role and, uh, and the subordination of women to men. In the essence of God, God is sovereign. That means he is the ultimate authority in the universe and the ruler of all things. God is absolute righteousness. That is the standard of his character. And God is perfect justice, the application of that standard in his dealings with himself and with all of his creatures, with himself, that is, in relationship to the other members of the Trinity. God is perfect love, and he is eternal life. God has no beginning and no end. Then the three O's, the omnibrothers, God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. That means that God knows all things. There's nothing that God does not know. He never, he never learns anything. He is never surprised by anything. He never increases or decreases in knowledge. He knows all things, all things potential and all things actual. He's omnipresent. That means he is equally present to every point in the universe at all times. And God is omnipotent, which means he is able to perform that which he wills. He is able to do whatever he wills to do. Then God is immutable. He never changes. There is no change in him. And he is absolute veracity or absolute truth. He And that relates to his righteousness being the absolute standard, and it is a function of his righteousness. He is absolute truth. This is the essence of God, and all of these attributes relate equally to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So he is said to be one in essence, but he is three in person. There are three distinct persons, yet they are identical in essence. Now, that implies that there, there is, in terms of their essence, in terms of who they are, they are completely equal. The Father is not, does not have anything, does not possess anything, does not have any ability that the Son does not have. The Son does not have any ability or any capacity that the Holy Spirit does not have. They are completely equal in each and every area. And yet they are distinct. So on the one hand, you have true equality. And on the other hand, you have distinctions. Equality in essence and distinction in terms of role. For example, in creation, God the Father is the architect or the planner. It is the Son who carries out the plan or executes the plan. And it is God, the Holy Spirit, who reveals the plan. So each person has a distinct role and a distinct function within that plan. And just because the Son is subordinate to the Father does not mean he is any less than the Father. And this has to, introduces the concept of a team. Now, this takes us back to some fundamental ideas that we've talked about in the past in relationship to understanding the person of Jesus Christ as well as the person of God the Holy Spirit. And it has to, and this has to do with 
laying a, a, a crucial foundation for society. Now, what do I mean by society? Society is any, in this sense, is any collection of individuals. Any collection of individuals. So, in the, in the sense that I'm using society here, we have an eternal society between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. An eternal society between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in which case there is true equality between the members of that society, and there is distinction in role. So this becomes the ultimate foundation for understanding operations of human society. Because you have as a model or an exemplar or example, you have divine society, which then becomes a model for human society, where you have on the one hand true equality, and on the other hand you have genuine distinctions. One does not override the other. Now let's look at how this has an implication. If you have, a, 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 for example, in Islam, you have solitary or unitarian monotheism, where you have only one, one person. What are the implications of that? With only one person, there is no eternal society. There is no eternal relationship. When you have an eternal society made up of three persons, you have communication, eternal communication, you have an eternal relationship, and you have an eternal love, because love demands an object. You cannot have love without an object. Love is a transitive verb and demands that there is an object. If you have only one person, that person has an eternity minus communication, minus relationship, and minus love. All you have in a solitary monotheism is a totalitarian or t tyrannical authority. Now, in a under a biblical model of a Trinitarian God, there is a correction to, to tyranny because each person is equal in essence and equal in, in all of their attributes. And so one is not superior to the other. There is only a distinction in role and what is called a functional hierarchy. Excuse me, I'm laboring with a uh, the residual effects of a chest cold, and it's just racking my vocal cords this morning. So you have this um, a radical distinction between the way you view ultimate reality and the divine society of a Trinitarian monotheism and a Unitarian monotheism. Furthermore, if you go into an evolutionary model of ultimate reality, there's 
again, you still do not have a person. Ultimate reality is matter. There's no person. There's no relationship. There's no communication. There's no love. So there's no ultimate basis for having a value in relationship in society. And so all relationships are then just arbitrarily determined by the creature rather than the creator. So we come to the fact that man, and everywhere that Paul argues, every time Paul gets into the subject of the relationship of men and women, he never grounds it in culture. See, that was the cultural argument that, well, Paul is just reflecting his culture. He's reflecting the background of rabbinical theology. He's reflecting the background of, uh, of his Greek culture. Uh, they were patriarchal. They were misogynist. Women had no position of equality. And that, much of that's true. But that's not how Paul argues. And Paul is not a misogynist. Paul has a strong commitment to the equality of men and women as equal image bearers of God, as equally created in the image of God. Every time Paul gets into this subject, he doesn't go to society in order to uh, substantiate his argument. He always goes back to creation prior to the fall. Therefore, we understand that the authority relationship set up in society, as far as Paul is concerned, as far as the relationship of men and women is concerned, is not something that is added after the fall as a means to control uh, the sin nature, but is something that was inherent in the original creation itself, and God designed men and women with distinct roles. So let's go back and look at Genesis 20, Genesis 1, uh, 26 to 28. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Now, 26 to 28 also forms another inclusio, the statement of God in verse 26 and the statement of God's blessing in verse 28 are almost identical. It is verse 27 that stands out in the middle so that what the author is trying to emphasize is the principle of verse 27, the creation of man in God's image. Let's start with verse 26. Then God said, let us make man, and here the idea is mankind, the human race, in our image according to our likeness. And the idea of image is the idea of someone that represents God. The idea of according to our likeness is that which reflects the immaterial essence of God or the basic attributes of God in terms of self-consciousness, in terms of, uh, of mentality, uh, in terms of volition, that man in his immaterial nature is a reflection of God's essence and is to represent God to the creation. This has to do with who they are in their essence and then, secondly, their function. This is the next clause. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. The idea of exercising authority over the creation is the function of being an image bearer. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created bara, created out of nothing. It's a divine act of creation. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is a profound statement because it's not focusing simply on the physical nature of man. See, we want to think of male and female simply in terms of a physical dimension. But here God is talking about the fact that he is creating man in his image. Male and female. There is not a simply a physical distinction between the man and the woman. There is also a soul distinction between the man and the woman. God has designed men with a certain kind of soul and women with a slightly different kind of soul. The thrust of the male soul is leadership, and he is the initiator. Remember, we're talking about man in a pre-fall condition now. And the woman is created to be his helper, his assistant. And the term there in the Hebrew was the term etzer, E-T-Z-E-R. Modern feminists, of course, want to think of that and define that as a demeaning term. Except throughout the Bible, the Lord is described as our etzer. So if a helper, someone who assists, someone who uh, comes alongside is is a negative term, then that says something about God. The point I want to make here is that the when you start mucking around with the role of men and women and you start changing it, it's not simply a matter of society. It's not merely a matter of function. It's not merely a matter of pragmatics. It ultimately goes back to a view of God and a view of the creator over the creation. And once you start changing these things, they have profound theological implications. That's why our starting point always has to be with God and then working itself. Now, we don't start with situations. You know, that's a tendency as well. What about this situation? What about this marriage? What about that situation where this is going on? Uh, that, that's, that comes down the road. We have to first of all start with what the Scripture says and what the Scripture outlines, and that defines parameters. And then once we establish those parameters and those boundaries, then we have to go in and realize that man is a sinner, and so all of our social relationships are completely distorted and marred because of sin. And this is why only as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, by applying doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit, can the damaging consequences of sin on a society, whether it's a nation, whether it's a uh, any kind of uh, social group or a mar- marriage and family, only under... Uh, under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, with doctrine, can those consequences be reversed? But we have to understand that there is a male and a female soul, a male and a female body, and these are not interchangeable. When you have a starting point from the Word of God, men and women do not have interchangeable roles. And the problem is that most of us have grown up in a post-feminized society in a feminized church where 
the assumption is granted that the role of men and women is interchangeable. And it is not, and that is a deeply rooted idea that most, and most of you, and myself included, most of us do not realize how profoundly we have been brainwashed with this idea. And that is why I think that there's so many problems in, one of the reasons there's so many problems in society today and so many problems in marriages is because people don't know who they are in terms of being image bearers. As believers, they don't know who they are in terms of the the sanctifying process of reversing the effects of the fall on their roles as men and women, and consequently they're they're fighting against this or they're trying to live on the basis of human viewpoint assumptions, and it's running counter to divine viewpoint, creating all kinds of conflicts, and they're not even aware of what those conflicts are. This is one of the reasons I'm taking the time to go through the foundation in in Genesis. Now, in Genesis 1, you have the creation of male and female, both in the image of God. That means that in terms of the essence of men and women, male and female, there is no difference. There is true equality between men and women in terms of their being, in terms of their being, just as there is true equality between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in terms of essence. However, there is a clear role distinction. And this is the argument that Paul always uses. He goes back to the creation. So let's turn over to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Genesis chapter 2 gives us the specifics of how Genesis 1, 25 to 27 was carried out. After God created Adam, God said in verse 18, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper uh, comparable to him. And again, the word there, helper, is Aetzer, which means an assistant, a helper, someone who is a partner to help him achieve his God-given role as an image, as being a representative of God and a ruler over creation. He can't do it alone, but it is his job as the leader, and it is the woman's job to be his assistant and to help him in carrying out his particular role. So verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. See, in that process, Adam begins to realize there's no uh, creature comparable to himself. Then skip down to verse uh, second part of verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, that is Isha in the Hebrew, because she was taken out of man, Adam. So that's the foundation showing that there is an integral connection between the male and the female. See, under evolution, you would have to have male and female evolve separately. There, there would not necessarily be this sort of integral 
unity between the man and the woman. So the Bible clearly talks about the fact that they are equal image bearers. They are There is a, a physiological unity because the woman is taken from man, and she has a specific role, which is to be his helper. But something happens in chapter 3. And I don't have time to get into that, but we have to look at what happens when sin comes into the world and how does sin destroy this original situation where there is true equality in the garden because they're both image bearers, yet there's a distinction in role. And then we're going to look at that the fall does have an effect The fall does have an effect on that relationship. It's not that it brings into uh, reality this subordination, but that it is going to affect drastically how that subordination is going to be carried out in human history. So we'll come back and look at Genesis 3, uh, 16 and following, uh, beginning next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to study these things. We pray that you would help us to uh, clearly appreciate all that you have provided for us and, and who we are as creatures in your image. Though marred by sin and the fall, nevertheless, because of redemption provided by Jesus Christ on the cross, the effects of that fall can be rolled back through the learning and application of doctrine. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit, sit is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. Every human being is born a sinner. Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nevertheless, God in His grace provided a solution to that sin, and that was to send His Son to go to the cross, and there He would pay the judicial penalty for that sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Therefore, the penalty has been paid. The only issue now is whether or not you accept the payment of that penalty. You do that by simply trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God, the Father who is omniscient, knows what you are trusting for salvation, and he imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, declares you just, and gives you eternal life, and that life can never be taken away. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand what we have studied today, that we might put it into practice in our day-to-day lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.